You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, folks. Uh, we have a good, uh, a wonderful treat for you today. I am uh, sorry I didn't know how to say that. It's a very complicated phrase. I am Jeff Edgers, the Washington Post National Arts Reporter. And today we are bringing you Sarah Cooper, who is uh, someone who may have been at one point famous for one thing, which was those things with the Trump guy. But I believe is now going to be famous for another talent, her her writing. Uh, and I have a book here. Unfortunately, it's not the hardcover. I was a little low on funds this week, but I'm getting the hardcover and it's hard and it also will have pictures in it. Um, but uh, Sarah, you've written, uh, first of all, welcome. It's very nice to see you again. And, and it's so great to see you again. The last time we saw each other was in Brooklyn in 2020, in like July or something. I, think. I remember I was terrified because of the pandemic and I was uh, I ate no food that day. Uh, but oh. we did see each other. We saw each other in person at this like sort of work office facility where no one was there. We went down an elevator, yeah. but you were very gracious. I did a profile of you and it was really one of the few times during the pandemic that I feel like I told a story that was of great value to humanity. So I really mean that. Oh, well, I just reread it and it is incredible. Um, like you said, the secondary interviews, I was looking at Kamala Harris, Cher, uh, Maya Rudolph. I mean, my father, even, you talked to my dad. Yeah, I, I, he wasn't easy to get to, you know? <laughs> he was probably the hardest one to get to. So um, that was incredible. Yeah, so we're, we're here now. It's amazing that it's three years later. You look the same. I look like an old man from maybe like, I don't know, like a kind of semi-popular rock band. But um, we're here to talk about. Uh, we're here to talk about this book, this fabulous book. And I, I told you on, uh, I told you on email. I said I love this book, and you wrote, well, it was written by a psychopath. So we'll we'll mine that. We'll figure out what that means. But um, let's start with the title, foolish, um, because uh, that's not what I think of when I think of you. Foolish it has a subtitle: Tales of Assimilation. Uh, determination and humiliation, but explain to me why you titled this Foolish. Well, it's very deep and meaningful, as is everything that I do. Um, so there's one meaning, which is that Foolish is referencing the fool that I played in the White House and how sort of foolish it was of me to do that. It's kind of a weird thing to think that I could play a 70-odd-year-old uh, billionaire in the White House, um, but I did it. And uh, the other thing about it was that I realized my whole life I've kind of been trying to look very smart and I don't want to do that anymore. I realized I want to be foolish. And that was something that came out of a conversation I had with Jerry Seinfeld, who's one of my heroes, my comedic heroes. And, um, you know, he said something about how a lot of this business is, is just the business of being embarrassed. Uh, there's so many, I mean, even just having this conversation with you right now, it's like we're talking to each other, but there's people watching. It's all very, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it can be very awkward and weird. And so, um, to just sort of embrace the foolishness of it all. Um, because to me, foolishness and unpredictability and imperfection is the most interesting thing that you can do in life. 
Um, and I realized that the most foolish things that I did or seemingly foolish things are the things that I learned the most from. So um, when you think about it, foolish is the smartest title of a book in the world ever. Yeah, and, and the other thing I'd say is this is the best book in the world. Yeah, I would say that it's the, it's the greatest book. It has the best words. Um, it's already sold over a million copies. So it's really exciting. Yeah, no, I, I agree with this and uh, John Dos Passos. Those are my two favorite books. Um, so look, here's the thing about you saying I tried to be smart. And um, but the fact is you are smart. You actually are smart. You spend a lot of time doing this thing in your life and in your book. I call it scanning for rejection, where you take uh, anything that exists in the world and you find out why you are flawed and you try to explain that. And I think you are, are, are hard on yourself. Sometimes I, I want to get into this book and say, Sarah, you, too much. You, got, you, you, you need to embrace yourself more. But then you do embrace yourself and it's okay. So tell me about that because um, to the outside world, we see you as a, a, an incredibly intelligent, funny, attractive star who came up and just blew up. So um, you, that's not how you always see yourself. No, it's not. And I am hard on myself. Um, and it's the perfectionist thing, you know, being an immigrant, you come here and you just want to be, you want to do everything right because you feel like if you do one thing wrong, it's going to be over. You feel like you only get one chance at everything. Um, so a lot of my perfectionism came from thinking there was one right answer to everything. Oh, I said that, but I said it wrong, or I shouldn't have said it that way, or I shouldn't have used those words. I mean, I do it to myself constantly. And it's taken me a long time to uh, embrace the idea of, hey, I did what I did. I said what I said. I'm, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Um, and kind of putting that in my mind instead of what I had before. And so it, it's like a daily process of just embracing every step in the journey and whatever step gets taken is the step that was supposed to be taken. I mean, even my marriage, just realizing how, um, you know, a month ago I was saying how I was so disappointed in myself and angry at myself for choosing the wrong person for me. And a few days ago, I thought to myself, wow, he was actually the perfect person for me because without him, I wouldn't have learned so much about myself. I wouldn't be where I am right now. So I'm so grateful now that he's the person that I married and that I spent eight years of my life with. So it's like my mom says when she has these, you know, she, she kind of reads these home goods decor sayings around the house, but they're actually very true. They're very frustrating, but they're very true. And one of them is, you know, life is a journey and every step you take is, you know, the right step and it's cheesy as hell, but it's, it's actually very freeing to just embrace every moment as the right moment, as the exact moment that you're supposed to have. So I um, uh, would, would ask you, you know, this question is sort of two-sided because there are people who don't write their memoirs until they're like 97 years old, right? Uh, and, and really, it's true. Uh, Golda Meir, I think she wrote her memoir when she was 97. But you, on the other hand, have written this memoir at a point that I would say you're in the beginning or I don't know how you describe it, but you've got a lot of time left uh, being a creative, active person. And so tell us about the decision to write this now. Yeah, I mean, it is early for me to write one. As you know, I'm 23. So being so young, um, I shouldn't be writing a memoir this early, but I am. Um, 
You know, I had a great editor, uh, Jill Schwartzman at um, Dutton, and she just really believed in me. And she said, I, I think that you have a lot to say. And you know what? She was right. And she helped me um, put, put together these essays. Uh, and a lot of the things that I write were things that I wrote during the past three years, but some of them were things that I had been writing since I was little. I put my journal in there from when I was 13 years old. I put my journal in there the week after I left Google and all the regrets that I was feeling at the time, like, oh, I made the biggest mistake of my life leaving this great tech company. Um, so I think it, it is a little bit early, but at the same time, because also I am 45, which I know is shocking to everybody, but I feel like I'm about 35. And so I do feel like this is a debut memoir and I do have at least two more memoirs in me. So Jill, I hope you're watching and ready. Yeah, Jill, uh, Jill was right. Uh, Jill's a very good editor, so she's right. Can I read, can I read something? Oh, please, I would love yeah. that. I, I, I have a whole bunch of things I'd read, but I was trying to find one. The thing is your pacing is really good. So it's like, it's a little hard to read something really, really quickly, but we don't want to burn all our time, you know, on, on me reading. Uh, and there's this wonderful passage. Oh, now of course I can't find it because I think I was moving it around. But there's this wonderful passage where you go to Starbucks, right? This lady, uh, God, this is killing her. Okay, one night, here we go, ready? I'm sorry, let me get back into my great Gatsby voice. Uh, this is uh, deep in the book. One night I was walking home and I saw a young woman crying on a sidewalk bench. She was wringing her hands and tears were streaming down her face. I was going to just let her be because I don't know any woman who hasn't cried in public. My go-to spots are Starbucks, Targets, and the Starbucks inside the Target. I figured I'd keep on walking, but then I couldn't shake how sad she looked. I sat down next to her. Hi, I said, are you okay? Wow, do I look that bad, she said. No, you don't look that bad, just sad. And she wiped her face and said, I messed up at my job and I'm just sitting here thinking about every mistake I've ever made. And it was so weird hearing her say that because I used to think about every mistake I've ever made all the time. The woman stared at me. Oh, sorry, I said. I was just gonna say, I used to think about every mistake I've ever made all the time. Really, she said? Yeah, she turned to me. What mistakes have you made? I clammed up. I didn't even know where to begin. I mean, I did, but was I really gonna say it out loud? I'm 45, I'm twice divorced. I got so many opportunities in the last three years and I felt like I squandered them. So many auditions I blew, so many amazing people I met, but I didn't say the right things. I went through a period of total fear, wanting to hide, waking up with thoughts like, you suck, you're such a loser. Why'd you say that? Inside my mind, a movie called My Most Embarrassing played on repeat and it was not yet a comedy. And speaking of comedies, the TV pilots were both passed on and I felt like a failure. I've never worked harder on anything else in my life. I wondered if my only talent was lip syncing to Donald Trump. That's not even a real talent. Could I really be that cursed? Maybe that sand ceremony was a satanic ritual. And there's another paragraph and then she says, ma'am, are you okay? Sorry, I just like, I wish we had an audience because I love that paragraph. There are so many little things in here, even your 13 year old journals, your, uh, your mother only giving you advice that she is reading off of home goods <laughs> Uh, products in all sorts of locations. Uh, it, it really is delightful. So let's let's talk about. You've written other books, and I have those books. Um, I actually loaned them to people because I was going to show them as props, but I've loaned them to people because they're so valuable. And it, you cracked the code of power. We can get into the Trump lip syncs, but this is really the the hook I think to it. Um, 
you worked at Google and Yahoo, you were very successful. And you, what did you learn there? Try to explain that to people and, and tell us about those other books because we want them to buy those too. Um, well, the first book was 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings. And I uh, was in a meeting at Yahoo in 2007 and um, some product manager got up from the table and uh, drew a Venn diagram on the whiteboard. And this Venn diagram made no sense and had nothing to do with what we were talking about. So I assumed people would be like, hey, uh, Jasper, sit down. Um, but instead, people were fascinated by this Venn diagram and they wanted to make the, the circle bigger and the circle smaller, change the labels. And he went back to his desk and went back to his you know, candy crush or whatever he was doing. And so I wrote down in my notebook how to look smart in a meeting, draw a Venn diagram. And then a week later, uh, I was in a similar meeting and someone was giving a presentation and said, 25% uh, of people clicked on this button. And someone else said, oh, so about one in four and made a little note of it. And everyone nodded and was so impressed with this person's quick math skills. And so I wrote how to look smart in a meeting, translate percentages into fractions. And I put that notebook away for a really long time, uh, seven years until I was working at Google and I was a manager and I, I came across it when I was moving in with my then fiance. Uh, there's a picture of me at Google and I had so many more tricks. So I added to it. Um, and I learned so many things. I think the biggest thing that I learned was so much of the corporate world is about imitation and, uh, imitating the person who has more power than you in order to get to that level. And so a lot of the corporate world is this performance. And I write about that being like, you know, every quarter we had a performance review where they would tell you how convincing your performance was. And every quarter my my manager would say, Sarah, you seem so passionate and engaged in your job. And I'd say, thank you. Thank you very much. That's what I was going for. You know, um, it was, it, and I just saw a TikTok the other day, literally a girl who is in Gen Z. Gen Z is all about um, bare minimum Mondays. I don't know if you've heard of this, but um, they're, they're finally getting hip to what's going on in the corporate world. And she was laughing her ass off because she said, I was in a meeting and we're talking about all this stuff and everyone's pretending to care. And then after the meeting, someone got mad at her for not pretending enough. That's literally what you're, you're being judged on is how well you pretend. And so that, I don't know what's going to happen with Gen Z because I feel like they're kind of seeing, you know, the man behind the curtain at this point. And so I don't know. I, I didn't really see it in that way. I saw it as, oh, this mm. is a job and Google is going to change the world, you know, organize all of the world's information, don't be evil, all of that. I, I bought into it and um, it works for a while, but if you don't truly believe in those mantras, it can be hard to kind of keep going. And so um, that was a really long way to say that, you know, a lot of these jobs uh, tell you to show up your whole self, bring your authentic self, but you just, you know, you have to love drinking after work and going to see baseball games. You know, there's, it's, it's a very specific culture that you have to fit into. At Google, they called it googliness. You have to have a, a, a googly personality and no one even really knows what that means. Um, but you, uh, at, at some point I was like, I don't feel the passion that I think everybody else feels and everybody is maybe pretending to feel or not pretending to feel. And when you have that disconnect, it can be a sort of an identity crisis. And it, that's why I ended up leaving Google 
was because I felt like I was living sort of a double life where I was sort of, my body was in meetings, but my mind was elsewhere. And so that's why I had to leave. Um, and I don't know if that answered your question, but that's, that's a lot probably. I think that, I think that answered it. The interesting thing about Gen Z, I think is that we, uh, people in our, you and I are in our mid thirties, in our 30s, yeah. we're, uh, we're on to the power structure, but we keep it in our heads and we write secret books or we make a movie like Office Space or whatever. The Gen Zers, in the midst of actually being at work, break up the meetings and, right. and say, look, I don't have the bandwidth for this. I'm going home. So that's, to me, the big difference. The, the, the thing about your Trump lip sync. Now, first of all, the roots of this lip sync were you were a fabulous singer, but not using your voice, right? You were a lip syncer. You were an amazing yeah. lip syncer and could not even get into the chorus at the school in this in in this area, which happened to be run by a man who went to prison for molesting children. Right? That's Maybe what that's happens. not funny. I don't. That, wow, that's real. I mean, it's real, but it, it, it that chapter is one of my favorite chapters. His name was uh, Mr. Joins, and I just wanted him to like me so much. I wanted him to put me in the chorus. I thought I had this amazing voice. I went to church every Sunday. I, I was a young girl. I was belting out these hymns, and I just thought I sounded so great. And then my mom leaned over to me, and she said, just mouth the words. Don't, just don't mouth sound. Just mouth. And that's when I started lip syncing. So I, you know, I started lip syncing God, basically. And um, I thought I had this amazing voice, tried out for chorus four years in a row, never made it, was trying to figure out why Mr. Joins didn't like me. I really, really wanted him to like me and he never put me on the chorus. And then um, always had a chip on my shoulder about singing. And when I was 32 years old, I took a singing class and made my parents come watch me do a recital at age 32, where I sang Bonnie Raitt, um, I Can't Make You Love Me, and I dedicated it to Mr. Joins because he, I just could not get him to like me. And then a few years after that, looked him up and realized he had been uh, convicted of, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, you, you, and, and I'm, I'm glad to say you quoted, that's where you quoted the Washington Post article on it. And I'm yeah. sorry, just to steal your punchline, you said, part of me felt relieved that I was not one of his victims. But mostly I kept thinking, wow, Mr. Joins was a pedophile and he still didn't like me. Maybe I really can't sing. Sorry, I mean, like you're always, you, you, you give it for the joke. I appreciate that. Um, you know, we have this special thing, Sarah, where um, this is the Washington Post Live. There are, uh, when I when people found out that you were going to be on here, there were millions of uh, uh, people sent me notes, uh, telegrams, and we have a thing called viewer mail. And, and, and we have just normal people in normal walks of life. Uh, uh, we have one of them to ask you here. Uh, can, can we see that question, please? Yes. A fellow named Fred Armisen from Mississippi emailed me, uh, and he said, what is your favorite name for a street? meaning an existing name. What is my it's favorite name? Okay, yeah. well, I, I kind of grew up on a street called Minuteman and um, I like it. I like Minuteman and I remember trying to figure out my <clears throat> porn star name, which I believe is like your favorite candy and then like the street that you grew up on. So mine was like Tootsie Roll Minuteman and I just thought that that was funny, so. I guess I'll say that. <laughs> All right. Um, the uh, you know, in that story that I wrote about you, one of the leads was a woman named Robin who kept writing you. 
And yeah. uh, I feel like this question is like when Robert Plant gets interviewed and they say, when, when are you going to form Led Zeppelin again? So, um, and I know what your answer is, but I want you to tell me because I think millions of people want to know this, which is people didn't just like your Trump lip sync. They attached an importance to it as if you were shaping American politics and you were saving people and that you were exposing something about the power structure and the way the world worked in ways that no one else could. That's why the vice president of the United States spoke to me one day, you know, about you. Um, and also it's funny. But I'm sure you get asked this all the time. This woman, Robin, asked it. They say, Sarah, we need you. We need you to go do more Trump lip syncs or blank lip syncs. We need to, to how can you sit there quietly writing your memoir when you could be lip syncing Donald Trump to stop him, right? So what, tell me about that. I don't think you're going to do that again. Well, yeah, it changes all the time. I got to be honest. Um, I went on a, a little bit of a book tour and um, I was at Politics and Prose in D.C. And we opened it up for questions. And the very first question was, uh, can you do Trump? I was asked to just do Trump right then and there. And I wasn't sure exactly what he meant. Um, but every city that I've gone to, somebody's asked about them. And it hits me every single time how much these videos meant to people. I went to my nephew Tyler's um, football game and I was buying a ticket. And um, actually, they just let me in because I'm Sarah Cooper. But um, the guy behind the ticket counter said, you're Sarah Cooper. And I said, yeah. And then we didn't really talk. But then I got a message afterward. And he said, I just want to say how much your videos meant to me. Um, me and my dad used to laugh with my sister and my mom at those videos. And he's gone now. But I feel like I can still hear him laughing at your videos. And it gives me chills just saying that. Um, so it all the time it hits me how how much people love these videos. And it's hard for me to think about does doing them again, you know, make them mean less or or does it keep it going? You know, I've, I've said before that I'm not going to do them. I've written in the book that I'm not going to do them. But as you know, this book is filled with lies. So and written by psychopaths. So <laughs> it doesn't really matter what I wrote in the book. Um, but I do sometimes think about it like, you know, if he if he it looks like a, a, a big threat, maybe I will. I, I don't know. I really I actually don't know at this point. I think that like all good, great artists, and, and when I talk to people who I love who write and, and comedians and musicians, I feel like it's just up to them. I, 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 what, I, what I don't feel like, it, you, it's very hard sometimes to, to figure out what am I deciding based on being asked to do this so many times and what am I deciding based on what I want to do? And exactly. I, I wanna tell you now, with all these people watching, you should do what you want to do, right? That's that's it. Thank you. But, I mean, I here you are. You've defined yourself. You've already defined yourself. You've had a, 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 an excellent comedy special. You've now written a memoir at the age of 23. And we, we know the Trump stuff. I actually talked to a young person today who was like 19. And I said, hey, I'm talking to Sarah Cooper later. And they were like, who's she? And I said, uh, she did that Trump thing. And they, they had no idea who you were. And then I said, do you know who Tom Hanks is? And they said, 
no. And I said, he's in that Toy Story thing. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that's comforting or painful, but the beauty of it is you move on. Can I tell you something? Sure. I was in Chicago last weekend just hanging out with um, actually Courtney Hall, who moderated my event at Chicago Humanities Festival, which was really cool. And a guy looked at me and said, you know who you look like? You look like that girl who did those Trump videos. And I said, (laughs) (laughs) so I actually got mis, uh, you know, interpreted as the person as myself. And then someone else said, you're not you're not her. So. You know, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with the kids these days. I really don't. Hey, Sarah, um, uh, we just have a couple more minutes, but I'm curious. You're very, very honest about your life. You also share a lot about I met your 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 ex-husband, your second ex-husband, Jeff. Uh, he had a guitar in the room. He seemed like a nice guy. I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't look in the linen closet and see all of his T-shirts. But um, I talked to your parents. There are things you say in here that are, are tough on you and things that are also like very revealing. Did you go to these folks and say, look, Jeff, I'm going to write about this. I just want to let you know. Or did you go to these folks and say, I'm going to write about this. How do you feel about that? And then think about all of that. Because, I mean, he comes off ultimately quite nicely. Yeah, I mean, I I want to be very careful about that. And I'm very glad that I was because my feelings towards Jeff have changed so much. Like, I think I was, you know when I asked for the divorce, I was very like, I don't even know if I want this divorce. I don't know. Can we still be friends? And then I went through a period where I didn't want to talk to him at all. And then again, now I'm in a period where I'm very thankful for him and I love him dearly. Um, and I'm, you know, so grateful for that relationship. So I sent him the manuscript, um, and he didn't respond to it, but, but he seems okay with everything. And my parents, uh, thought everything that I wrote about them was very funny and you know, edited a few things here and there. My sister, of course, Charmaine, she really didn't want me to curse. Um, so uh, I, I, but I kept the curse words in there because I enjoy cursing and I'm not gonna stop doing that for her. I'm sorry, Charmaine. Um, but I, I have sort of a, a sixth sense, I think a little bit about um, talking about these things in a way where it's, I'm being revealing, but I'm trying to, put a lot of the onus on me and taking responsibility for things that happened to me um, and not saying, oh, this person did this and this person did this. And so that's kind of the line that I tried to toe. And I'll be honest, there's so much more that I could have said, so much more. In fact, Jeff, I was going to put you in here um, and your demands for my mom's Johnny Cakes and how crazy it was that a Washington Post reporter was demanding Johnny Cakes. So I didn't put that in here. Do people? Can you tell people what Johnny Cakes are, please? Johnny cakes are the only Jamaican dish that I will actually eat because I am not a good Jamaican, as my mom says. Um, You know, there's oxtail, there's curry, goat, there's all kinds of amazing Jamaican dishes, but I will only eat Johnny cakes, which are basically just flour and water fried. So it's bread. It's just bread. I did say at one point to your mother, I think the word was hatchet job. I said, if I don't get a Johnny cake, I'm going to turn this profile into a hatchet job. And uh, she promised, and I thought, and, and I got duped because I didn't get the Johnny Cakes and I still wrote a story that was, frankly, <laughs> very kind, you know? So, so kind, so kind. Um, you know, I wish we, we could, like, we could talk for hours, couldn't we, right? We could. Um, but we can't because there's a format here and there's a mm-hmm. huge demand for programming at the Washington Post Live. 
we just we only have so much time. But I just want to tell you, I, I, I'm so glad that we caught up. I didn't realize it had been three years. I really enjoyed my experience uh, uh, writing that article. And I loved reading this book. And I'm just going to look forward to following your career because it's, it really does feel like it's just starting, you know? Thank you. It feels like it's just starting for me, too. And I can't thank you enough for your generosity, your amazing writing and your amazing questions and just for being an all around stand up kind of guy. Well, thank you. I can retire now. All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, thank you to Sarah Cooper. Go get this book. Um, and uh, that's it for Washington Post Live. We're, we're so glad you were here today. And um, any questions, comments, concerns, you know how to send them. That was the real Fred Armisen. Really? It was. I wrote him this morning. I said, I'm having Sarah Cooper on. Do you have any questions for her? He is from Mississippi, you know. Oh my gosh, I love Fred so much. He makes me smile just thinking about him. Thank you for reaching out to him. <laughs> He's always into it, you know what I mean? So, all right, hey, thank you so much. And uh, we'll, we'll see you like when you do memoir too. Oh my God, I can't wait. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.